podcast. I'm Spectre, and with me is Z and Anti. We've resurrected Anti from the dead. So, uh, yeah. So we're going to... Oh, I just got to eat that. Okay, so yeah. So the first thing we're going to talk about is this Ghidra, uh, XXE to RCE. Uh, I know you brought this up, Z. So do you want to talk about it a little bit? or? I, I definitely can start talking about it. Um, I kind of made that same mistake I made during the uh, first stream. I'm not sure if it got picked up uh, by uh, chat since I should have had it muted, but I apologize if uh, I made that mistake again. What's uh, funny is I did the exact same thing. I had the stream running on a monitor and I had the audio coming through too. <laughs> yeah, I was pulling up the stream chat and realized it wasn't muted. I'm pretty sure that didn't impact anything. Yeah, let's jump right into it with this uh, apparent XXE to uh, RCE in Ghidra. So unlike oh. the last one, you know, this, unlike the last RCE, this is at least attempting to be a more legitimate vulnerability. And it is, there is a legitimate vulnerability in here. Uh, the basic idea being that the project files with Ghidra are uh, XML files. Um and so yes. you can just inject your external entity as like pretty much it's a pretty classic XXE issue. Uh, so if you create a malicious document that includes the um, uh, external entity, it'll make that request out there. So I don't really agree with calling this RCE since the RCE is coming from another service. But what you've got here is XXE makes the request. Um, and you can kind of force it when uh when it when Java kind of makes that request out kind of the default handler if it gets a 401 requiring authorization it's going to try and figure out hey what type of authorization should I provide one of the things you can make think is that it needs to provide the uh, kind of windows set the uh, NTLM hash so you take that hash and you replay to another thing uh, pass the hash attack. So you replay to Samba, you get you get a connection or login on Samba, and uh, you pull RC out of that. Uh, so the RC isn't in Ghidra. Uh, the XXC, I mean, it's it's an actual issue, and it will be patched in a nine point oh point one. Uh, that hasn't yeah. been released yet, but the patch, like it's been mentioned, that they will be fixing this. So I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, they shouldn't have done this one. It, I don't think it's as big of a deal. I mean, I haven't seen too many people trying to make any type of big deal out of this. Uh, but my feeling is that, you know, they're fixing it out pretty quickly. It's XXE. You know, you can do a lot with XXE, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, it It looks... Uh, it's one of those things where I think it's pretty interesting as, like, something to talk about. And it's something that can be learned from. But, you know, at the same time, it requires you to use a malicious project file. And from what I know you're not really going to be sharing around project files like that very often. Yeah, at least not without trust. It's not, this isn't something like Photoshop where, you know, you might do something cool in Photoshop and save your PSD so other people can take a look, like, and yeah, modify exactly. it. At least I've never done that with, like, you know, Ida or something. And, I mean, if I am sharing a project file, it's definitely, there's a lot of trust. Like, we're all kind of communally working on something, so... It's going to be somebody really abusing a lot of trust they have. Uh, at the same time, I mean, it would be really easy to inject that. And I mean, targeting kind of other hackers is is a bit of a juicy target if you get somebody. Like if you know somebody um, 
I mean, there's the fair chance of it. Don't, just don't yeah. accept, you know, Samba logins off the network. Yeah. For one, I mean, you still have to do that, which is, again, another limiting factor. Most people aren't really letting that in off the network. So even if they're able to get the hash out somehow, they're not necessarily going to be able to do too much unless they're in the same network and then you're dealing with the insider threat. I don't know. I mean, this is something that it's it's also just kind of like XML handling 101. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that it's there is a little bit concerning. I'm willing to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt because I, I don't see any reason why it needs it, but they were quick to kind of respond and patch it. Or, yeah. again, we don't have the release of it, but they were apparently quick to do so. Now, the one thing... Oh, sorry, Auntie, do you want to say something? Yeah, I was just curious, if you scroll up to the actual uh, XXE, right? Or maybe it's not scroll, scroll down. You know, oh, I scroll down. I confuse the two directions often. Um, <laughs> Directionally challenged. <laughs> uh, you know, I was just curious. I mean, it actually seems like something that's pretty trivial. To be honest with you, I'm surprised that maybe uh, the whole reason it was never caught is because, like uh, was already said, you know, this is really just a trust abuse. But I would be curious if that's something that, you know, there's a lot of trust groups that work with one another to share, like, uh, if they're using this for like malware research and stuff like that, I, I bet you could actually leverage this pretty pretty painfully. But would it not be pretty obvious that it's there if you're going to look at the project file just to get an idea of what you're looking at? I assume it's not obfuscated, or is there a uh, method to obfuscate it so that someone wouldn't see the obvious one that we're seeing here right now? Right. I don't believe there is a method to obfuscate it. I'm not confident in that. But if you're going to be sharing things, I mean, Ghidra does have the collaboration functionality built into it, and that's going to be more likely to be used for, well, collaborating than just sharing a project file. That, uh, that said, it is absolutely a trivial issue. I mean, like I said, this is kind of like XML processing 101. It, it is yeah. something that no, should that... be dealt with. Yeah, yeah, agreed. An another thing to talk about, too, is often is you won't you might not share project files. What's more common is exporting scripts. So like dumping database to script files. Uh, so yeah, just touching on your point there about like sharing project files and stuff. Uh, the other interesting thing was I noticed at the bottom here, the, the mitigation section, they put upgrade to the latest version of the JDK. So uh, is this like, is this an issue with Ghidra directly or is it an issue with JDK? Like why? Oh, uh, you know that I don't have an answer to. Because uh, I didn't my... see anything about JDK earlier in the article. Yeah, yeah, nor did I. That's that's a good point. If I had to make a guess, uh, there may be some change in like the later JDKs as to when it decides to send the NTLM hash, because it does do some trust checking. Uh, that is mentioned in the article. That does look to see, is this a trusted URL? Um, according to this article, though, uh, everything is a trusted URL. Okay. So like it doesn't act. So maybe that's what changed. I don't know the answer. That would be my speculation, though. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is just something uh, we wanted to touch on because it did happen and kind of connects back to the Ghidra discussion we had from the first podcast. Yeah, Another... I mean, there's the other issue with an RC here. This one at least comes off as a little bit more legitimate. I mean, calling in XC, X, sorry, uh, RC is such a stretch, though. Like I said, it's in Samba. You're not actually getting code execution in the Ghidra process or anything like that. Uh, so 
I mean, yeah. I, I really don't like the fact that it was called an RC, because of course you see that, that's a headline, that's getting them clicked. And it's really not. Uh, well, in terms of... Didn't you know, everything is an RCE. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, in some sense, you are getting uh, command execution on something. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, with everything you do. That's like a super trend now that's happening, where everyone, like, like, see, I can run code, so now it's an automatic RCE, where, like, that... It's kind of like a, a weird way to put it, where XXE... Well, yes, XXE is, is a real issue, and that's there. It's the no, fact no, that no, it's just absolutely. leverage through uh, patch the hash. Uh, can't talk today, but a pass the hash uh, <laughs> type of attack. It's a tongue twister. There we go. Yeah, so that kind of connects back to the first podcast. And the other thing that uh, you know throws back to that a bit is I remember we were talking about Cutter a little bit. So uh, I think we can jump into this. So just five days ago, Cutter 1.8 was released. And I think it's good to talk about because there's actually quite a few additions. You can see the list here. So they have support for Python plugins, graph, uh, graph overview, uh, and like showing the sizes of structs and unions. So, so I remember us talking about uh, like Cutter and it not really being a competitor to like Ghidra and Ida in terms of assembling tools. So do you think, do you think maybe these additions could change that? A outcome? lot of these additions are pretty minor things. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, one of the last things listed there, the addition of a dialogue showing, you know, infinite progress bar. Okay. That's pretty small. That's it. The Python plugins. I think that's the big news with this release. Is that yeah. it's not just the C plus plus plugins. Um, I'm assuming you know they're just wrapping the C plus plus, but I mean yeah. that's still giving you access to everything that had there, making it a little bit more accessible. I mean whether or not we like Python, I mean within InfoSec, Python's at least a pretty uh, accepted language. So I mean it, it makes sense for plugins. I think the fact that now there's support for that in Cutter, Cutter interface. I think it will make a difference. I don't think it makes it really a competitor because most of the issues are a lot more fundamental uh, with uh, Radar 2 than just the UI. Yeah, like I remember especially we were talking about the big binaries and that is one thing I'm looking for here that I didn't think of before. Uh, I'm looking in the fixes list to see if they mention anything about the... Uh, like if they've updated updated it to be better with larger binaries, but I don't really see anything. I mean, they mention a memory leak. It points up there near the mouse, actually. Uh, down. Oh. Now I'm just going to control search it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. so it's there's that, right. which maybe is related. Uh, that wouldn't necessarily be a big performance thing. That said, the analysis, by and large, is going to be happening outside of Cutter. Yeah. I mean, Cutter, Cutter came out, like, how long ago? Like, what, less than a year, right? Yeah, it's pretty recent. I think it was about a year ago that uh, V1 was released. I mean, I, I think that like if you take it past the, the capabilities, which I know is a silly thing to look over, but um, I mean, since it's basically a front end, and it's it's Radar, right? Not Radare? I call it Radare. I'll probably call it that forever. So. Yeah, we so, actually uh, went and looked up a YouTube video, and <laughs> it uh, it wasn't clear say there's the accent so he could have been saying radar with an accent or he may have been saying radare my mental hat like my mental voice has always just said radar even though it's uh, clearly not spelled that way but 
<laughs> that, that's I probably do. the like more logical way of saying it. I just like the sound of Rodari. It sounds more fancy. So that's because you need the fancy tools yeah. like Rodari, Ida. I mean, yeah. I, I, th I think this should be another thing in InfoSec is at least defining the pronunciation. No one ever puts it in their, their docs, but it drives me nuts. <laughs> but um, I, I thought what was interesting, though, is uh, in terms of, like, competition, right? Like, if you're trying to compare this to Ida or anything like that, um, you know, the biggest issue Radari has always had is it's, like, an absolute pain in the ass to work with if you're a beginner, right? Um, and we've kind of touched on this when I was last on the podcast. Is like, I, I think anything that's a front-end, to a tool that already exists is a, a good segue for anyone trying to jump into a tool that's not something they have to pay thousands of dollars for, you know, that's completely free and allows you to use it a little bit easier, uh, I, I think is a plus one regardless, you know. Um, and it's not a bad interface from what I can see uh, from the latest version. So I think that's kind of actually a good step forward. And I think we should have more people doing that. Uh, if I'm kind of transparent, I, I think it's so hard to find shit that's not, you know, go on this Linux server, do this weird group of commands and and grip it into this like it's it's <laughs> something that's very easy to set up and jump straight into yeah so i do want to say with uh cutter the interface is actually very nice uh the ui i would say is on par with or perhaps even better in some aspects uh than ninja but like you said to be it's clear, kind of that's binary by ninja it. for anybody that's not familiar <laughs> yeah I imagine most uh, of our listeners probably are but you know, Binja yeah. is a bit of a weird sounding word. Which is another one I love. But uh, yeah, like Cutter's interface is really good. That is one thing it has going for it. It's just that the capability really needs work uh, in terms of like the larger binaries and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I thought this was this release was kind of interesting. I might I might download it, try to play with it a little bit, uh, see if it's any better than when I've tried to use it in the past. Uh, the graph overview is kind of a big plus for me because I'm a noob so I, I use the graph overview pretty heavily especially for like seeing you know uh, code flow and functions so that'll be interesting to see I'll, I'll have to take a look at that yeah I'm actually a little bit surprised it didn't have that before but at the same time like Andy said it is somewhat recent so that's yeah. fair and to be fair I haven't used cutter uh I've used it maybe once or twice, so like I don't have a deep, intimate knowledge of how Cutter kind of works, but um, or what it looks like. But yeah, you know, I'm hopeful though, and just seeing, you know, the plugins are a big deal there. So seeing yeah. that, you know, that opens up a lot of room for people to kind of start getting involved in make making things more useful. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So talking about uh, plugins and stuff like that, uh, there was also the release of this interoperability framework for uh, Ida and Ghidra. That was at least you, you could call it that. Um, okay. So what what do you well, mean by that? I I mean that's the theory that it's going to be an interop layer between Ida and Ghidra, letting you run Ida plugins on Ghidra, letting you run Ghidra plugins on Ida, but. I mean, I don't know why he released it so early. It's a great idea, but it does yeah. like nothing right now. I think it gives you support for like a handful, like you can get like the current address, current highlight location program, some of that information, but you can't really pull a lot of information. Uh, it doesn't support, as far as I know, like XRefs or any data that you're really going to want to use in a plugin. It just isn't there. 
it's just it's not it's nowhere near feature complete i mean you're not necessarily expecting it to be feature complete right away uh so like i'm not going to fault them for that but it just doesn't do very much at this point and the only examples are literally you know print hello world type stuff actually i think that is the only example script in the uh, github repo yeah i did notice that when i looked at it uh, it, it's still pretty immature. Like I noticed there was support for a few different uh, like API functions, but yeah, but not there's much, still a lot of work yet. that needs to be done. Yeah. Like it's a nice idea. I think we actually kind of joked about just before the Ghidra le- release about, um, you know, it's going to be an IDA killer and you can run all the IDA plugins on it and like just some, you know, crazy speculation going around. And yeah. I mean, like it is, it's one of those things like if this worked, you know, Ida has, Ida's plugins are one of those things that you're pretty much, when you buy Ida, you're buying it partially for that plugin support. Yeah, uh, that can even be, like, the decompiler is a big thing, too, of course, but that costs extra. I mean, the plugins, if this worked, that would be a huge thing for Ghidra. It wouldn't be, at least at this point, all that big for Ida, because there aren't a ton of Ghidra plugins. But it would be a big thing for Ghidra if you can load, uh, depending on how well it's for past versions, like years of plugins. Although I guess that's the other thing, you know, with Ida's plugin system and breaking changes with the major releases and stuff, it's, you know, it's maybe not that much history, but there are some pretty standard plugins there that bringing them into Ghidra would kind of be pretty useful. But I'm really, I'm still wanting just debugger plugin that yeah that would be nice yeah uh yeah i'm hopeful i think we should keep an eye on it but uh yeah i don't think it's you know you're not really going to be able to use it for probably any plugins yet uh but still yeah it's definitely interesting yeah this, I mean... the, this website the person who created it is this their post i keep saying i i i, I assume yes yeah i believe uh, so you yeah. know I, I think um, my only thing I would kind of pick on it for, not because it's new or anything like that, you know, it's how most of these things start, to be honest with you, um, is I feel like, you know, there's very little information in this post, and maybe it's been updated in the later post, but, like, it's kind of hard to look at something objectively. No, like, like half of it's like, about the name. The artwork. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was trying to figure out what I'm looking at here, I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, that's fine. I don't, I don't mind the... Uh, the, the call out they may not have as many people that can ask for graphic stuff i just like if you're going to release it i always appreciate like a, a nice decent overview you know of, like here's what it does boy like, here's an example you know what i mean like that that tends to resonate yeah but more, that, so. that would tend to show that it doesn't do very much and i think this at least picked up a little bit of traction on reddit i think that's where i first saw it and i oh, don't yeah. think it would have picked up as much traction if it was clear that it really didn't do very much well, I think it's on the heels of the release of Ghidra. You know what I mean? To kind of, ca- I don't want to say uh, cash in or cash out. Good lord, it's cash in. Or... Yeah, cash in on <laughs> um, the recent the recent release. You know that while it's still fresh and people are still very much talking about it, and is this the Ida killer? Someone, you know, this is the time to release it to get traction and to get more support. You know what I mean? So I I, I kind of understand why. But uh, you know, to the effect of the Ida killer thing, like all the other quote unquote Ida killers have been like. Like they start like Vinja, they start off kind of quiet, fresh. You know, we're gonna take it down, and then it turns into its own product. So then you're just basically choosing another product. It's no longer an 
uh, open source project or something like that. So um, I do think these are good steps, though, to, to becoming the quote unquote Ida killer as there's more functionality built by the community. Um, I just I always uh, love that conversation. Yeah, know, like I definitely agree. If the community adopts this, there's a lot of hope for Ghidra because it does have you don't have the same professional support that you have from Ida where like you're paying the thousands of dollars and you're getting that support where if, if there's a bug that you come across, it's getting it's probably getting fixed pretty quickly. Like there is an active development team. You buy Ida, you're paying them. Uh, you're, you're getting a good level of support with that. With Ghidra, it's open source. There is a development team behind it. I don't think we're going to see immediate responses like, you know, bugs fixed in 24 hours or anything, though. So that is kind of the downside with Ghidra. Uh, but the thing is, like, Ghidra is open for newbies. And that's actually kind of mentioned really briefly in this article is, you know, I think, it, uh, let's see if I can find the quote. Uh, second paragraph is, oh, um, yeah, I think it is important not to create a schism between IDA users and new Ghidra users because that will not benefit the RCE community. And yeah. I mean, that that is, I think, a crucial point here where Ghidra is available for new users and it isn't Radar. Uh, whether or not we like it, Radar definitely has a bit of an issue uh, in terms of its reputation. Uh, we can argue about whether or not that's deserved, but this is something new, um, and new users are going to be. Um, I don't think anybody can really argue that it won't be used by kind of people new to the. Uh, yeah. But that said, I mean, Ida did, or has all. It's kind of lasted on its reputation for quite a long time. Uh, so yeah. recently there's been what the educational release of it uh yeah so they just did that so you can tell they're feeling the pressure from uh from Ghidra's release yeah i definitely feel like this is something that uh happened because of Ghidra and not just like, oh, they were already planning to do this so close to it. I mean, maybe they were. I, I, I don't know what's going through their head. Yeah. But my feeling is that, you know, this is definitely something that they've released because they're feeling a bit of pressure from that. And I mean, it is important to get the user base started early because that tool you first use becomes a tool you continue to use into, like, uh, working as a professional. So if you get started with Ida, you're probably going to stick with it for a while. Yeah. So that being said, I, I will talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, the general limitations and stuff of this new educational release. So obviously you, you do have to be a verified, uh, you, you know, a, academic institution. Uh, this seems to be mostly targeting is like uh, institutions rather than individual students. Yeah, I think we uh, discussed that, how like getting your own individual license isn't actually very easy with Ida. Oh, yeah. uh, they don't really make this as something that an individual is going to buy. This is something, it's priced at the point for enterprises. It's targeted towards the professional who's doing this. Yeah. They have the free version. Yeah, this one, like, you know, you look at that application process, and this is just that same thing again. Need a description yeah. of the course, where it's going to be used, start date and duration. Number of seats. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a lot of information. It doesn't make it very easy to use it in that type of environment. Yeah. Uh and so talking about the features a little bit, uh like how it differs from Ida Free. So this version does have scripting support and it has uh debugging in it, which I, I don't think the free one has debugging in it, right? I'm I don't think it does. Oh uh, that I'm not sure about. I, I don't think it does either, but... I know it doesn't have scripting, but yeah. Oh yeah, sc scripting for sure not. Like I mentioned earlier, that's something you're kind of buying Ida for. Uh, yeah. But the debugger... um, Actually, yeah, because it comes... Does it come with a demo debugger, actually? I can't remember. I haven't looked at Ida Free in a while. But I'm I'm pretty yeah, sure these are like exclusive to Educational and Pro. Um, But one thing that the Educational License doesn't have is decompilers. And I, which is fair. That's obviously one of their more pricey uh, points. Like that's something that it, it costs a lot to get the yeah debuggers, or not de the decompilers. Yeah, but at the same time, they're they're targeting this to you know academic institutions to people who are like learning how to reverse. So, and I think decompilers are kind of instrumental in at least helping people who are new um, see like function flow and stuff so like that. What like you're the saying is you're an F5 user. I'm definitely an, F an F5 <laughs> user, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I can see it, it really depends on the course. I mean, this kind of comes down to the fundamentals of how do you learn the skill of reverse engineering. And, you know, tools like Godbolt, I think, are essential you know i definitely spent a lot of time using like tiny c compiler you'd write your simple little program you'd compile with tiny c and then you take a look at the resulting binary and that's useful the decompiler i don't know i'm not sure i'd say it's as essential while it is like professionally working when i need to do something yeah it definitely speeds up my work and it is essential in that sense but for learning i i wouldn't but the same argument. I mean, to, to give some thoughts on that, I, I feel like this is kind of a, a weak response and please hex rays don't assassinate me for this. Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel like the hard part is like, like in an educational type of uh, environment, right? Like first off, hex rays always has you go through like these hoops to get anything. You know what I mean? Like again, like, you have to send a, a letter to them with all this. And I don't even think it's a guarantee. I don't, know anyone who's gone through the process but I, I feel like if you're trying to design a course right that your students can use and you know for the long term hopefully if you're teaching these uh, students you want them to be able to like continue the research after the course right so I feel like the hard part is like for my from my point of view is like I, I think it's just easier to go and still get Ghidra go get up to speed on that and you can also have your students download for free I don't think there's any real limitations right now and who can use Ghidra right um so, yeah, you, know, really. why, you know, why limit yourself to something that is obviously going to cost a lot after you're done with, with an education? And on top of that, I was curious if the input files, it, it shows up to one megabyte. Yeah. So that seems pretty, I know that, I mean, a lot of times people aren't analyzing like large files, but that still seems like a pretty hefty limitation, no? Oh yeah, that that's a really stupid arbitrary limitation. I'm, I'm really, I, I wonder if they're going to remove that because it is really stupid. I mean, but it yeah, would be it a big prompt to buy 
actual iDive if you're going to use it for something real and not a dummy binary. Uh, just to follow up really quickly, uh, it is just a demo debugger that's included in the free version. Okay. That quickly. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the one meg limit is, it's enough that like you can write a simple, stupid little program and examine it. I, I, it really depends on what the course is going to teach. Like, yeah, if it's teaching just reverse engineering, but I mean, what about malware analysis? Then you're going to want to look at actual malware samples and the one meg limit just isn't going to work in that situation. At the same yeah. time, you know, they open it up, uh, you know, unlimited size or something. What's really a reason to buy Ida then? Especially since it supports plenty of platforms, you know, like kind of your key platforms, 32-bit, x86, 64-bit, your well, ARM and ARM64. Well, I think the biggest thing would be the, the decompiling stuff, right? That would be the big push for buying the Pro Edition. Um, but that doesn't thing... come with the Pro Edition. <laughs> you have to buy the decompilers after you buy the Pro Edition. Yeah, but can you buy the decompilers and add it onto the Educational Edition? Like, does it even support? I doubt that. To... Yeah. Um, and I guess the other thing I was thinking of was, you know, since this is going to the institution... Once the students are done the course, they don't get to keep Ida, right? So I I, I don't know if they've released the biggest... what their terms are. They very well might. Like if you get a seat on this, you might get a year of Ida to, like to use that. It One might be beyond the duration. It be does ask for that, but that doesn't mean that's when they're going to end your seat on Ida. Like, I mean, I think part of this is just trying to get into the early user crowd. Uh, for so long, Ida was able to rest on just their reputation. I mean, for so long, one of the classic books to recommend on reverse engineering was the Ida Pro book, because if you're going to do RE, you're going to use Ida. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, this is their attempt to kind of get back into that entry-level market. And I mean, so I can see them letting it last a little bit longer than just when the course ends, but they don't want to obviously kill the seat before the course ends either. Yeah. No, I mean, it just, I feel like there's so many restrictions that, you know, once again, as, if you're trying to get into this, having these types of restrictions, and even if it goes past, right, your course, like you can use it for up to a year or something like that, you know, it's kind of just a pain in the ass all around. You know, there's just too much, I think, at least Microsoft, I believe the way they did it was much, much smarter, you know, that they got into high schools and stuff like that, you know, to to really just get everyone to use their products so that, you know, in a couple of years, you know, everyone knew how to use Microsoft crap, right? And that you really didn't have much option outside of that because the, the next generation had already been using it for so long. Ida should be, you know, doing the same thing is trying to go and say, well, you know, we have this kind of, I don't want to call it a stranglehold, but, you know, a, a pretty prominent place in the industry. It'd be so smart to just kind of, relax themselves a bit and start pushing into the community more. I, I feel like there's very, very much a divide with the community um, because of the way that like, you know, they push these things out and it's kind of like, here's a little like piece of, piece of our software. Um, and for good reason to protect themselves, but it also just is when you're looking at now with Ghidra and all the support coming out, it, it really is kind of like a, just a matter of when it's, it's no longer comparable. You know what I mean? Yeah. I um, mean, it's, this. I almost feel like a Photoshop's kind of an interesting example here because it's something where all the professionals, at least as far as I know, I'm obviously not a professional in the graphics industry, uh, but as far as I know, it's pretty well used by the professionals. 
But as an amateur, you couldn't really afford it. At least years ago, Creative Cloud's kind of changed that. Uh, but everybody would pirate Photoshop. Or, you know, PaintShop Pro back before Photoshop was as popular. But, you know, everybody would pirate it. Let's be honest, Ida gets pirated. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's it's, look at the type of community it caters to. Of course, people are going to, you know, actually yeah. reverse it and then pirate. I mean, that's just... I mean, it that's seems why, like... Why fight it? Why fight it so much? Why not be more logical about it? Yeah, you know it seems I mean? like Photoshop has always kind of, like, they fought it, but not completely. Like, they've been somewhat tacitly okay with the piracy as long as it's individuals using it. Obviously, they're not going to publicly say, yeah, you're totally free to pirate this. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, that wouldn't be the best. I mean, decision. that actually really worked out for Photoshop. I mean, obviously, it became heavily adopted by everybody, such that we even have, you know, the phrase that that looks shocked or things like that, Before where I... Photoshop, although there's debate, the shop might have been referring to Jask and not Photoshop, but uh, at least now it refers to Photoshop, and that worked for them to kind of get that early market, get people so they know how to use this. Yeah, don't support piracy, but... You know, it, it's going to happen, and kind of accept that. If Ida kind of came down a little bit more like that, if Ida were more accessible, I mean, yeah. they would probably get more purchases, but maybe that would also push the price down. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's a good example, though. The Photoshop thing was definitely a good example. That was a smart move on their part, where they're like, we can get way more people. We don't have to worry about piracy as much. It's the... I don't want to get into a discussion, but, you know, that's always the thing. Is if it's cheap enough, people don't have to pirate it and all this crap, right? They'll just go and use it and pay the small price. Yeah, and that kind of allowed the professional hold to kind of remain. I mean, yeah, there's Corel or whatever else. Again, I don't really know what the hold is like in terms of the professional environment, but... I mean, with Ida, like, there is definitely a split in tools just within reverse engineering, within exploit dev, within security. There's a split between the tools professionals have and the amateur access. And Ida's one of those things where it's like all the pros definitely are using Ida right now. And going forward, maybe they'll change, maybe not. But, like, everybody that really does this professionally has an Ida license. It's there. Um... And then you've got tools, though, like, I mean, Binary Ninja, you know, it comes in there. Its price point is definitely lower. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure I'd say Binary Ninja has really done this right either. But they've definitely captured, like, an interesting portion of the market just because it is accessible, uh, just pricing-wise. Yeah, like... Uh... You know, Binary Ninja is only like, I think, $150, at least at the moment, for the starter edition. Yeah, well, I think, is it starter or student? Either way, like, you, think, can't use a, you can't use that one prof professionally. Like, you can't use it in a commercial environment. But, you know, you don't need to. Or somebody yeah. just getting started, $150, that's, you know, like, that's a price that somebody can kind of afford to put down if yeah, they definitely. really want to get into it. I mean, it's still neutered. You know, like no multi-threading. You need you can't save the analysis. Like th those issues are still there. I feel like it does a better job though than Ida. Like the one meg limit here for the educational, or like no debugger. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I could be okay with an input limit on the file size, but one megabyte is just way too low. At least like maybe ten megabytes would even be a lot more accessible. I think. I don't know. I mean the. Size limit 
just doesn't make sense to me to actually yeah, use that as your as yeah. your point of like oh well i need to analyze larger binaries like you kind of just analyze what's interesting to you sometimes that's a big binary sometimes it's small you know whatever it's not like as you become a more commercial or as it becomes a more commercial offering something your binaries get bigger like there's no correlation between the binary yeah. size and that to be fair i guess for the educational like there probably is a correlation between like a dummy program being under a megabyte and a real software uh being larger than that so like i guess i can actually say that that does make sense a little bit but i think it's just too limiting in terms of what a course can then offer unless the course is just about you know reverse engineering 101 yeah yeah so we'll have to see if that plays out i'm i'm I, i'm not holding out hope that they're gonna change that or anything well i I don't know what the solution would be for them because of how they already have their pricing structure because it's just ida pro gets you basically your plugin support and then you buy your decompilers like there isn't a lot of room for them to cut things out because they don't offer very much like i don't get me wrong ida obviously is like a tool is huge and there's a ton of functionality there in terms of what they could reasonably be cutting out, like I don't know what I can really say would be an okay move for them. I think Binja kind of had the advantage there because they already saw what wasn't really working. Uh, yeah. So I guess the real question is, when are we getting a sub- uh, subscription-based access to these tools? Never. <laughs> Hopefully never. <'cause... laughs> well, with, I mean... with the move, like the current trend of programs is you can get a subscription to it i mean who knows actually yeah. isn't binary ninja doing like a cloud version or something i don't think it's yeah, subscription they but they are doing a cloud version yeah uh, going back a bit to your photoshop example yeah i guess the the big pusher of this uh programs as a service model was created cloud uh which to be fair i guess like you said i think you i think you mentioned this that it did make it a little bit more accessible to students yeah, well, I mean, you don't have to have it all the time. You can just go do a month subscription. It's still expensive. Like, I'm going to be honest, I yeah. still use my older version because, you know, I paid for that. That's my software. I get it. And, I mean, one of the things with Photoshop's pricing, actually, is year by year, like, you could pay the upgrade fee. You So you wouldn't have, so once you bought it outright once, your next year was cheaper. Your next year was actually okay. kind of a more reasonable price. Okay. Yeah, so I think Ida has kind of a similar one. I know it doesn't get cheaper, but I know they have like, uh, you know, yearly updates. And if you don't pay for the next year, you just get like a perpetual fallback on the latest yeah. supported version before you get yeah, that is ended. that is what you get. And I mean, that that's fair, I think. That's one that, thing yeah. I really hate about the subscription services is that you lose that when you no longer pay for it. Which is really, yeah, I don't like But that it does make it more accessible because you can on a whole pay less if you only need very short. Yeah. Like, you don't really get to own anything. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, uh, moving off of tools, I guess, the next thing would be the uh, Windows Defender on Mac. So this recently... Oh, I think... Oh, that was interesting. Move like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Defender, I think they renamed it to Defender ATP for uh, for Mac. 
Uh, so well, so what they did was it used to be Windows Defender Advanced Threat Platform. Now it's Microsoft Defender because obviously it's no longer oh, okay. just Windows. That was the name change. Yeah, there isn't really a ton of information here. Like, I'm curious what this is actually going to look like. If this is just going to be like a really simple uh, AV offering or if this is going to be like actually implementing some of the exploit mitigations that Windows has into Mac. I really doubt it's going to be that. Just, you know, Mac isn't exactly open source for you to just go add in your own functionality, but that would be interesting if it was. Yeah, so for those of you who are watching who don't know, uh, Defender was kind of like a successor to Emet, which was the Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit. So, you know, among those was a bunch of mitigations, uh, attack surface reduction. It had like, I think it had like auditing and reporting stuff in it. Uh, it had like control flow guard, arbitrary code guard, and yeah, I'm I'm not. They don't really say if those if like that mitigation toolkit is going to be ported over to Mac. Yeah, and to be uh, clear, um, that was like uh, Emet has kind of been rolled into both Windows operating system and Defender, uh, but Defender was more than that. Like Defender also had this general like malware and stuff. Like it wasn't just that being rolled oh, out yeah. as something else. Sorry, yeah, I should have worded that better. It's not only the successor, but yeah, it rolled it in and added it to all the other stuff that defender provides like the antivirus and stuff like that yeah like the gist of defender is antivirus anti-malware and just kind of security like they do some ransomware protection uh making sure certain files aren't being modified or modified unexpectedly things like that uh so i mean there just isn't enough information to really say what's happening here yeah was there no other release information they were just like hey we're going to put some stuff on a Mac. You want, you want in or what? This is all I was <laughs> able to find about it. Um, there there wasn't much. Sorry, do you want to say something, Z? Well, I was just going to mention, like, this is all I really saw, though. Like, I didn't find any big release information about this. It's just, I mean, it might even be relating to the advanced threat platform that was, like, the enterprise offering that has a ton more functionality than just even the AV. Uh, which actually sounds like it might be because it does mention needing the tenant, which is kind of a phrasing that usually is reserved more for enterprising things where it have like your centralized area and then all the all of your uh, environment computers would have the tenant on it. So it's possible that this is even kind of more than that. It's uh, the full like enterprise offering of Defender. Yeah. Though on that, I did see uh, a quote somewhere that uh, basically said that at the moment, because it is an initial release, it does lack some of the enterprise management features, uh, mostly reporting. So I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'll try to find the exact article where I got that from, but there was basically, there was a future comparison and it was saying that the reporting wasn't really there yet for all of the components of ATP. Uh, was is that maybe what you were uh yeah so i'm actually just pulled up here a little bit more information about this okay. uh you can tell how much work goes into prepping this uh, <laughs> that i'm pulling up these documents for us to read live uh but it looks like this has at least a little bit more about what windows defender had this isn't explicitly microsoft defender um but it sounds a little bit more like the endpoint behavioral sensors, uh, like a bit more on the 
uh, so enterprise I, type functionality. So it's actually pretty smart <clears throat> what they're doing here. Um, so Microsoft has been really good about slowly moving into the cloud, right? And they've stuck 100% going, we want to hit enterprises. So, you know, this, they already do the enterprise like um, mail server stuff. And, you know, this is only a natural move because then you can manage everything from one most likely uh, panel, right? So all your end users, they're all up to date. Um, you know, you can manage their email, their authentication. So this is only, this really isn't a surprise to be honest with you. I just, I, I do feel that it's kind of a, a interesting thing for them to move into since uh, I, I haven't really seen any managed, like decent managed uh, Mac OS uh, antivirus solutions that like you can centrally manage like this. Um, there are a few out there, mind you, but um, this is just a smart move by Microsoft, honestly, and it's probably nothing major for them because they're just going to slap it on there, go, here you go, monitors for files and general malicious activity and roll it back up into the, all the other stuff they offer. Like I said, I'm really interested if they offer some of the exploit mitigations, like if they're able to get that in. I doubt it, but I think that would be really interesting to see exploit mitigations back. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this before, right, on the first podcast. We were talking about how Mac, for one, doesn't really have many good antiviruses, at least not, you know, uh, easily accessible. And the other thing is, you know, it seems Apple focuses most of their security focus on iOS and not so much on Mac OS. So it would be cool to see uh, some of the mitigations that were developed in Emit, you know, ported over to Mac. But yeah, like you said, I don't know if that's going to be happening. Yeah, like, I don't know how they can really... It's not like... I, I mean, if Microsoft partners with Apple, it, it's certainly possible. I don't know. I think that's if... likely? Pro probably not. Um... I mean, I guess um, if they... Yeah, no. I, know. I, was, I was going to suggest, you know, if they... Or if they got into Unix and kind of get something pushed in there, but I like got something pushed in uh, upstream. But I don't even know how much OSX is really off of like Next. And yeah, and I know Apple likes to keep a lot of their security stuff in house. They well, don't they really keep, like they like to keep everything like that's yeah, really one absence. They do like they build their own hardware and like they do everything. Which is a really yeah. cool thing, actually, for Apple, because it lets them, uh, you know, do some interesting stuff. But, you know, it also means it's unlikely Windows is going to get in there uh, to offer that, which is, I mean, maybe it's not necessary. Uh, there isn't a ton of Mac malware. It's definitely out there. There have definitely been campaigns getting uh, Mac, but, I, I mean, it's not, at this point, it doesn't seem to be a huge issue. Yeah, so I guess that would be a bit of an interesting question for you, Auntie, is do you think that, uh, you know, Microsoft Defender on Mac will help uh, in regards to those, like, malware campaigns from, like, a threat intel perspective? Sort of. So, I mean, I've, I've never really looked at them, um, honestly, from a malware perspective, because, you know, there's just so many AV vendors out there. Um, what I would say is yes and no. I think if you have... Um, I think if you're subscribed to Microsoft and use them for your entire enterprise, right? I think it's actually great for IR and threat hunting because you can really just go down the chain pretty straightforward, right? From 
email delivery or the server or things like that. So it makes managing probably like the IR investigations a hell of a lot easier because a lot of times, like I know when people have Mac desktops, a lot of organizations use like 15 different freaking things to monitor um, different applications and different uh, servers, different desktops. Um, so I, I think that for actual exploit mitigation though, it I don't know how much more effective it'll be outside of any other antivirus that ties into like virus total and their own, you know, IOCs, you know, is this, are you communicating out to this? Are you running this file? Those are things that also, you know, I, I just don't think there's a good solution at the moment for Mac. And I don't think it's going to do much realistically. I think it's, especially at this, this age of it, you know, it's, it's really fresh. So it'll be quite some time before they've ironed it out and made it something truly useful. And even then, you know, how much effort are they going to put into it? You know what I mean? So it's kind of to be seen. I think it's good to have another person looking at it or another entity, I should say, looking at, you know, exploit mitigation and actually putting in controls to do that. But I mean, I'd have to pass it over to someone who's used Windows, you know, how effective was Windows Defender in general, you know? And if it was, then they can probably take a lot of those lessons learned and port it over to uh, Mac. Which is a good question. You know, Windows Defender definitely gets a little bit of hate. Uh... At one point, it was pretty terrible. Currently, like, you know, can the antivirus be bypassed? For the most part, all of the AVs can be bypassed by new content. Yeah, there is some looking at, like, heuristics to look at um, at runtime to determine if something's malicious, but generally, those are really kind of a last defense, and the big thing is the database of known malware. So, at that, I mean, Microsoft is in a good position because this is kind of installed on windows like everybody by default it's not going to be a max they're in like less of or in a less uh good position but um, i mean on windows even though it gets some hate it's not a bad antivirus at all uh the point of it is just like yeah it can be bypassed by like if you're being targeted by somebody that's writing custom malware no defender isn't protecting you um or who's pulling out like their own old days to infect you and everything else that's not where uh, Defender's kind of going to help, but you're the average user. It's there in the background. You know, that advertising campaign or malvertising. That's where, you know, Defender kind of comes in as that common malware. And that's where most antiviruses come in, is in protecting you from that. And at that, Defender's fine. It's not like a cream of the crop or like the best thing there, but Defender is fine. And if Windows is able to do the same thing on Mac, um, I don't know, I guess it's hard because I think a big part on Windows is they have a ton of intelligence about Windows malware, something they're not going to have on OS X, or at least not as easily get that information. Well, and that's where I'd be curious. I mean, if you look at Mac by default, honestly, you know, and I I don't want to pick on it too much because there might be a lot of things going on in the background that I don't actually know about you know what i mean but i i mean from what i know by default the mac the operating system has a firewall that i I don't even really know by default what the settings are right so it does have a firewall but that very does very little often more times than less it has like built-in encryption but again that doesn't really help you from uh malware and then lastly i think i know that like basically you can restrict it that um apps are only downloaded from the app store or identified developers, right? So when they download the software, it's a a known developer. Um, But a lot of times people are downloading programs that aren't necessarily signed by 
an identified developer, right? So they bypass that anyways. Uh, so when you look at that, that's kind of the basic protections that Mac offers. There is no built-in antivirus at all. So I think that honestly, any antivirus <laughs> that could literally know about three different pieces of malware in its entirety still do a better job than Mac OS does on antivirus. That's true. I guess I was trying to make a comparison with what we kind of have on Windows, but yeah, if you break it down to what's kind of there on Mac for the average user, yeah, comparing it to nothing, antivirus wins out. I don't know what it looks like to... You know what? You'd kind of be surprised at how controversial that is. There's so many people out there kind of parroting, oh, antiviruses don't do anything because they can be bypassed. It's like, they're not for everything, but they matter. I, I see a lot of people are like, you, you don't even need an antivirus. If you're not really dumb, you're not going to get hit with a virus ever. <laughs> yeah, and I yeah. mean, it, I always like pointing back. I had, um, I used to kind of go on uh, Cracked.com every so often, and they were hit by a malvertising campaign. And just like, there we go. Like, I was using that site. Yeah, I was blocking ads, so I, I, mean, I wasn't hit, but a site I used, a site that I wasn't really thinking of would be infecting me, could have infected me it's not just small websites that are getting hit like it's a real issue of just malware infect you and it's not like the late 90s early 2000s where your malware is going to put a pop-up on your screen you know every couple minutes and it's going to be really obvious now the malware is a lot more subtle yeah that's yeah that's a very good point and it does drive me insane people are like yeah you know so you just shouldn't use antivirus at all because it, it can't really protect you and i'm like that is so far from the truth like I mean, I'm so smart. I don't need antivirus. Yeah, I don't. I don't just. I, I am the antivirus. <laughs> I don't use Internet Explorer. If I'm good, guys. Like, I'll never be hit with malware. Like, yeah. that's, that's why malware campaigns do so well because people just they're lazy, you know, and they don't update things. They don't pay attention, and so they go, "Well, the likelihood of me being affected is pretty low because I'm not like my grandma who just clicks everything." Right? <laughs> it's like it's terrible advice to give anyone. You should definitely have antivirus in some capacity. Yeah, it doesn't catch everything. I think the actual question I would pose is, um, and this is a little out there, but it's more of your privacy from an antivirus perspective. Because all these AVs, I know that um, I think it was Kapersky got in trouble because supposedly they're siphoning off your files and they scan them in the cloud, right? But you know, are they pulling confidential files and stuff like that? You know, can you trust your antivirus? I, were I they scanning having... the or the full files, or were they just pulling hashes? I, I honestly can't remember, but I think it was they were actually scanning the full file, not just the hashes, because they're they're analyzing the file in full, right? Seeing, um, I know some antiviruses will actually run the program in a little sandbox isolated, um, possibly in the cloud, and then that way they can actually see everything it's trying to reach out to, you know, system libraries. But I, I, I think that would be the average user who should be worried is more about the privacy as opposed to, does this stop APT whatever from, from dropping malware on me? Like, you can't, I, I don't know. That's why I think it's hard to, like, actually gauge how valuable this is compared to any other av because honestly it's kind of you know smoke and mirror sometimes as to what they fully cover you on and what their effectiveness is but you know yeah, and you i mean until we have a release we don't know yeah we're just here speculating that it, by the way it looks a little too close windows defender atp i thought it said apt for a second i, was I like, thought oh, it did too <laughs> that's a weird name choice for that one huh <laughs> Um, yeah, and I mean, the other thing I did want to touch on with Mac, in fairness to Mac, is there is a, a little bit more of that restricted nature with Mac compared to Windows. So with Windows, you know, you, you can go on a website and just download a program and run it. You know, that's a common thing. Whereas with Mac, you know, they do have that app store. 
uh, apps that make it in there, they're verified through this like rigorous process. So at the window way, store. <laughs> <at> the Windows <laughs> Store, what a meme. Uh, yeah, so with Mac, you know, you do have that case where a lot of the things that people are running are from a verified source, or you have less of a, a way to get untrusted code running on Mac. It's it's harder to do, I guess. Uh, like it's not impossible or anything. Like like I think we said, one, you know, there's been malware campaigns, but I think one really crucial difference, just in terms of how Windows is used and how Mac's used and how Linux is used, are your user accounts. I mean, on Windows, people run as their admin account. On yeah. Mac, you always have to kind of do that extra login. On Linux, like you don't run as a root all the time. Now, to be fair, there is the user account control on Windows, but I don't know if we, t I know we've talked about it. I don't remember if that was covered on the podcast. It um, wasn't. Yeah. I so, I mean, user to. account control is something that can be bypassed pretty trivially, like all yeah. the time. Like it's not even considered a security issue because it's an admin getting permission to do admin things. It's there. It is a layer of protection, but I mean, it can be bypassed. So, I mean, you're basically running as an admin for everything and that's a big security risk on Windows. Yeah, I was just about to add in basically what you were saying there is that, yeah, they, Microsoft doesn't even consider UAC a security boundary, so they don't even acknowledge bypasses as, like, security issues. So it is a layer there, but, it, yeah, it's a, it's a weak security barrier. But, uh, yeah, so I, I think it could be useful on Mac, but I it, it's definitely something that's probably more useful for Windows, especially, like, what you were saying, where you already have the previous malware samples and stuff to work off of for windows yeah although andy did mention the enterprise aspect i wasn't even really thinking about that but yeah that's a key point like i mean it's why even if um you know a company uses a lot of linux servers there's a good chance you know once they get to a certain size they're probably going to use active directory because mm -hmm. microsoft has done a good job on some of their enterprise level offerings yeah, I think I think the way, and if you looked at the little small release we saw where you could sign up, I mean, ask for your company name and this and that. So they're obviously trying to hit enterprises and go, okay, you know, usually it's just to sell. So if you're like, well, we were thinking about using Microsoft, but, you know, we, we have a thousand Macs that we need to monitor for and you don't have a solution. This is probably just a simple way for them to go. Actually, we do. You know, here you go. I, I, I'm fairly confident that's all it is. And honestly, you don't even need... Like the way nowadays it works is virus total is, you know, anyone can upload to it. It's owned by Google, right? Like most enterprises have a subscription to it. So I would be blown away if, if the Microsoft AV team doesn't have a subscription that they just pull, you know, consistently uh, malicious files from. So they don't even need, they have a lot of like, obviously uh, probably more research on Windows malware because it's Microsoft. But I think that they could easily supplement what most AV vendors do anyways and just use uh, Virus Total and find malicious files for Mac there and, and just roll it into their, their application, if I'm being honest with you. Um, so it's, it's pretty straightforward. I don't think it's anything groundbreaking. I think it just gives them more leverage to, to beat out competition and go, here you go. We protect your Mac too. You, you know, crap like that. Yeah. Okay. So, so talking a little bit about Windows... Uh, there was something else interesting from offensive security. 
uh, development of the new Windows 10 KASLR bypass. So for those of you that don't know, KASLR, it's basically ASLR, but used for the kernel. So that's why there's that K prefix there. Uh, so, yeah, so I think it's pretty interesting to talk about because Windows kernel is a pretty interesting target, right? Once you compromise kernel, you know, you can do a lot with that. And one of the bigger, more common mitigations now for trying to mitigate that from happening is ASLR. So for those of you who don't know, ASLR basically, it randomizes where the kernel is placed at boot. So, you know, even if you have memory corruption uh, or you can, you know, even code execution and you can direct the instruction pointer, you don't necessarily know where to go unless you can defeat uh, the, the randomization. So that's where this kind of comes into play. So I'll, I'll do like a bit of a brief on what happens here. So essentially there's, you know, desktop applications and there's, there's a window for them, right? So every application will have a window. And so a lot of Windows UI stuff happens in the kernel. Part of that is mostly for performance. You know, you don't have to worry about the switches or anything like that. So a lot of their UI stuff is in kernel, which includes window management. So user applications will have a handle into that. And there's a kernel, you know, backing portion of a, the tag WND object for Windows. And, you know, uh, the offensive security found that the lower 28 bits of that address are always the same. So I'm just going to try to scroll down a little bit to get to that. Uh, Which, to be fair, is kind of a common thing. Because it, it, it offsets the base loading address, but it doesn't go... Or uh, ASLR will change to your basic loading address, uh, but it's not going to change... Like, it's not going to shuffle around the functions or something, or the variables. Uh, so it does happen quite a bit that the... Uh, least significant bits are the same, and then you have to figure out what the upper most significant bits are. Uh, you know, where that base was loaded. So as soon as you can get one of those, then you can kind of calculate everything else. Sorry to interrupt. Oh yeah, no, that's all good, and that's that's a good, like, addition. Uh, so yeah, so these... So it has this address highlighted in uh, green and blue in, in Windabug, and the lower 28 bits are highlighted in blue and those are always the same across boots. And the other thing is the, the, the one that's shown in green, uh, the upper 36 bits are equal to the desktop heap shared with user mode. So you can basically calculate the absolute address of this object, uh, and defeat ASLR with that. So, uh, so just to note this, this isn't an issue on, uh, where is it? Let me just see. I know it's not an issue on the latest version of Windows because of they changed uh, how some of it worked. Uh, yeah, in the the upcoming 19H1 release, so they did some design changes. So they didn't. I don't think they patched it intentionally, but you know whatever they did messed with that uh, technique. Yeah, but it I, seems yeah. like they were working on changing kind of how some of the heap worked. Um, as the three four kind of mentioned, they had started to fragment the heap. I'm guessing uh, the patch or the fix for it was it related to just kind of that whole heap restructuring uh so it yeah. might not have been an intentional fix for this issue but i mean just kind of part of the larger um uh goal of what they were doing i'm not familiar with but yeah 
So this is this is quite interesting, right? Like one thing I did want to talk about a little bit is Windows kernel hasn't had a fantastic pass with a strong ASLR. Uh, I I know I don't really do much Windows research myself, but I know that from the past, you know, there's been a lot of API calls and stuff that just willingly copy out kernel pointers to user land and they just don't care. And part of that I think is because of how old Windows kernel is. You know, uh, it's some of the code is so old that they didn't even really consider probably the security implications of doing that back then. Well, I mean, when did they even introduce the KASLR? I mean, if the code's older, older than that, nobody was even thinking about it because it's always in the same place anyhow, like whatever. Yeah. So Windows has been trying to really uh, clamp down on those lately, though, I think the past you know year or two they've been really trying to cut those out and this is kind of another interesting part of that right is uh now people are starting to find bypasses to even when they're doing it properly so i thought that was kind of interesting to to talk about yeah and i think it kind of touches on a point where windows gets shit on for their security all the time yeah, And, I mean, some of that is user error, like everybody running as admin, which is partially, you know, just kind of encouraged behavior, like they don't really discourage that at all. Uh, but, I mean, Windows does some really interesting stuff when it comes to security, like especially EMAT. That was around, like, they had some interesting mitigations in there, and yeah. I don't think they get enough credit for some of the work they're doing. Like, yeah, they, they definitely started on a bad foot. Uh, given a lot of their design choices, so I don't want to pretend like Windows is great. But they're definitely taking some of the right steps. I mean, who can you even compare this, though, to on a level like Microsoft, you know, with Windows? You know, if we're comparing it to, to what? You know, Linux, which is has its own set of issues, but, you know, that's that's open source, right? This is, and if you look at Mac OS, right, I don't think I've really read many reports on any uh, kernel stuff for Mac let alone how Apple's handled it. I, I think given, you know, the complexity of a lot of this, I, I can't really fault Microsoft for anything. Not not for anything, I shouldn't say that. But for, for some of this, you know, it's it's this type of like bypass is obviously advanced and sophisticated. And, you know, for I don't even know how large their team is, when you have it being the largest operating system used in the world, you're gonna run into stuff like this all the time and you have to do your best to mitigate it. So I think in their defense, they, they action it more times than less and actually try to implement a good solution, not just a, oh, well, we'll just block you from running that exact code. You know, they, they do try and actually address the issue head on, at least from what I've seen in most reporting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I'd go so far as to call this a sophisticated bypass personally. Uh, just given kind of the nature of it. Like, it definitely takes some knowledge of the objects and stuff. Like, I mean, kernel exploits in general, I guess, aren't, like, basic level. So in that sense, like, there's some sophistication to it, but... Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I mean, it's I... not... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, as far as ASLR bypasses go, it's not incredibly complex. It's not like you're using, like, an info leak and trying to use it creatively or anything. It's It's... It's a static address, right? Or it's like 28 static bits of an address that you're able to use to break the randomness. It's not a, it's not too hard of a bypass, but like you said, you know, that's in the context of kernel exploitation already. 
Yeah, and I maybe I should have for someone like me who's not deep into kernel exploitation, right? I, <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, let me clarify. For someone like me, you know, this isn't baby's first buffer overflow. This isn't something, you know, that's relatively mundane. You go, wow, that's really pathetic, right? Like we were talking about with all, you know, users having admin or something like that. I, I think it comes down to, though, um, you know, this is a bit deeper into what I would say is exploitation, right? So I think when you look at it, um, it was just an important note that when these things like the kernel start introducing vulnerabilities, you know, it is not always easy to find stuff like that. I mean, look at the work by, uh, is it Google's Project Zero, where they've been yeah. um, finding endless amount of stuff. But, you know, you don't always, there's so many millions of lines of code. You know, it, it's obviously, you don't have the time to find every last one of them. And uh, I, I think it's just one of those things that, in my mind, as someone who's a little less sophisticated on kernel stuff, you know, I, I think it's just probably difficult in general to to find them and mitigate all issues. But, you know, you can only do it. You don't know what you don't know type of thing, right? You can only do what you can when you know about it. So that was kind of my uh, leaning. Yeah, and I mean, they mentioned actually another one that was a bit more trivial than this. And it seems like the kernel restructuring, like for the heap, sorry, the heap restructuring may have been related to those issues because those are also no longer an issue. Um, I think it's mentioned kind of towards the start of the article. Uh, we don't really need to jump over to it. Um, yeah. It's just that, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it is a bit more sophisticated even than the kind of trivial exploits that have been used. Yeah, it's like, definitely more technical. Like, Yeah, that's maybe yeah. a better way to put it. I mean, if you just you look at the, they know the history of when certain things were mitigated and how and stuff like that. I, I mean, this these conversations are always going to be like me going, hey, you know, that looks actually pretty complicated. And I was like, actually, <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually a baby could do this. But I mean, I, I, I think that it just showed to me, I've seen a lot of write-ups that sometimes are kind of like someone just perchance stumbled upon it, where these researchers, obviously it's for offensive security. You know, they obviously have a lot of familiarity with it that, makes it probably a little more straightforward to find things like this you know yeah i mean i think he outright in the article uh morton shank i think is how you say his name uh but yeah i think he directly said in here that he like intentionally went out to try to look for these types of bypasses uh he said in an attempt to bypass this uh oh no that's not the sentence but yeah he, he basically says that you know uh he wanted to go into it to try to find something new um so jumping a little bit back on the kernel stuff so like you were saying kernels are quite complex right there are millions of lines of code uh as far as i know this bug wasn't discovered this way but a lot of kernel research is fuzzing because of how complex the code is it's in a way it's easier to just do some targeted fuzzing on some you know interfaces of the kernel uh though that being said that's not how this i don't think that's how this bypass was found uh this is kslr bypass but yeah i just wanted to add that in there that fuzzing is like a huge part of kernels and browsers and anything that complex right essentially i mean fuzzing is uh systematic stumbling upon thing yeah so talking about fuzzing uh the next topic is edm yeah, fuzzing ethereum virtual machine fuzzing uh, I thought yeah. this was kind of cool. It was, uh, I mean, this was just released, you know, five days ago. I, I've 
I think I've seen some projects that have done something similar. Nothing, nothing really written up, but Googling EVM fuzz does actually come up with another project. Uh, that said, I mean, this is a decent report to give a quick write or read over. Uh, but the cool yeah. thing about this is rather than targeting smart contracts, which is where a lot of uh, Ethereum attacks go, is, you know, improperly written smart contracts. Uh, rather than doing that, this is looking at the virtual machine that's actually going to execute the smart contract. Uh, so if you're not too familiar with Ethereum, uh, the really basic rundown is you've got a blockchain that uh, can have code on it, basically. It compiles down to a bytecode that is executed by the EVM, which... Then the final state after executing that gets pushed back onto the blockchain. And that's kind of how you have the uh, stored or shared state of the virtual machine is kind of across everybody. Uh, so, I don't know, a lot of what they found. So one thing is denial of service is obviously going to be an issue or a concern. Uh, you don't want to have like infinite loops. The machine, in theory, is incapable of doing infinite loops. I'm not sure if that's actually been like proven that it doesn't have it. I'd assume it has, but I don't actually know any sources of that proof. Oh, of which, sorry? Uh, Probably. that the EVM can actually do infinite loops. Uh, I know the EVM should be ter be able to terminate. Yeah. Uh, so actually, so I think they do actually have a thing here. They talk about a kind of an edge case or actually maybe not even that much of an edge case but basically a function here that takes inputs a and b and they there is an infinite loop condition there that they do talk about so okay oh oh i wonder i'm sorry no i was gonna say and i i haven't looked much into ethereum i'm familiar with blockchain but i haven't looked at the vms but i'm curious if it's so in the ddos perspective right um if you're running these contracts i wonder this is just per client like your actual you running ethereum not not server related for the entire network or is it for the entire ethereum network well so that, that has to do with ethereum like the state of the ethereum virtual machine is what gets pushed onto the blockchain so like it is shared for everybody and that's kind of what they are fuzzing were what are the differences between some of these implementations so yeah it is an individual like there's no server that's running the entire blockchain well there might be but like it's somebody who decided to do that um yeah, it's just kind of like you initiate it and then there's a state and you can confirm that that's actually the state by running it yourself okay uh so the interesting thing here is you know they're fuzzing the virtual machines themselves to see if any of them give different responses than what they should uh, and that would lead to a case where, you know, one VM kind of pushes the state and then another one can't actually verify that the state is correct um, and like corrupting the blockchain now or rejecting it. I uh, think, is it by default, I'm sorry, is it by default rejecting it or does it sometimes in these cases accept the fraudulent? Well, so that has to do with like the whole consensus protocol mm -hmm. uh, in order for it to be accepted. And to be honest, I don't know enough kind of on that level to jump into it. Yeah, no, I was just going to say from a perspective of like, you know, there's been a lot of attacks on crypto lately. And there's, you know, when you look at like financially motivated you know, cyber criminals or whatever, 
you know, even APT groups, they're going to want to carry out attacks against these types of crypto networks. I was just curious if it allowed you basically to carry out a denial of service against a, a wide amount of the Ethereum network, right? So against that's what they found. What they, they didn't find any cases where, uh, like, they're able to enter into an infinite loop, but they did find that they could crash several of the VMs, and that's what their CVs or were denial of services by crashing. Uh, the client basically, uh, which is kind of an interesting target. Is I think it would be more interesting if they actually found different outputs. I don't think any of their issues actually did that. Uh, that would be more interesting. Yeah. I I I don't know what type of attacks you'd really do though, because it always has to be verified. Like you need that consensus on it. So if you find that's like an attack that's just against one, like I don't know what that would look like, but. I mean, it feels so wrong that there should be something. But yeah, most of them end up being these runtime errors that uh, either crash or cause a panic, uh, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry, Dante, did you want to go? or? No, 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 go ahead. <laughs> I was just, just going to say, um, one thing I did notice was this talk of uh, gas in the Ethereum network. So uh, I think that's, it's basically like the transaction fee for sending transactions across the network. Right. So from what I, you know, I'm not big into Ethereum or smart contracts or anything like that, but from what I could gather, it's basically uh, how much the fee is or gas is like their term for it. Uh, the, the depends on the demand for how much is needed and you know, how much, how uh, yeah, basically the demand and how much is available. So the reason I think they call it gas is because, the transactions are processed by miners, right? People who are mining the cryptocurrency. And <clears throat> and so that ca causes the supply. So the more the demand is, the, the higher the fee is. And what I noticed was the CVE you were talking about, the one that ran into a runtime error that would cause it to crash, you could basically, uh, you know, run this smart contract uh, and, and cause it to crash and the transaction fee wouldn't get paid. So you could kind of influence the Although the would it be able to generate a block then? If if the transaction fee is never getting paid, it's also terminating before the block gets sent out. So I'm just trying to see here. So here's the, the part where it says it. So once the vulnerability is exploited, they can make the, the Ethereum network abnormally congested without cost. So that's what it was, sorry. So it wasn't really uh the transaction fee itself it was just that they were able to do this without paying any transaction fees and they could congest the network oh yeah yeah so i mean yeah if you're crashing kind of all of the miners before they can generate a block it's just going to keep adding up and adding up and nobody's able to mine so and yeah i guess like you said they can do that without actually needing to pay a transaction fee in theory i mean it that's in the air condition so if somebody that wasn't uh vulnerable to what was running at then uh they wouldn't or they would be charged but i mean it's, i don't know like what the popularity is of the different vms like but yeah i mean it's there's definitely ways to abuse this i just think it's a really interesting concept to be fuzzing that vm i i think it's very spooky honestly if you look at a nation state level man i I'm, I may even get too crazy here, but I think that it would be absolutely fascinating from like a theoretical perspective. I mean, if you go and crash, you know, 75% of the, you know, miners, 
is someone going to be able to swoop in and start, you know, making a lot of the money from it? I don't know. I don't know what the real impact of this is besides obviously being a douche and slowing down the network. Like what is the, the full impact here? But I do feel like there's something here. I just don't know enough. <laughs> I don't have enough knowledge to figure out what this means fully, but there is something here. So it is fascinating. Yeah. That's kind of what I was saying before with, if you can find like the issue that actually has different outputs, uh, like that sort of thing. Like it obviously feels very wrong, but I don't know what the, would necessarily look like just because of that consensus issue but yeah i mean these denial of services could definitely be used yeah i mean i think that's what's actually really interesting about the cryptocurrency stuff and you know the virtual machines that are processing smart contracts is there is like way more impact in that than there is for like anything else right you know if you're running let's say a browser that's another example of a virtual machine uh, JavaScript gets, you know, interpreted uh, in a VM, you know, the worst that can really happen there is somebody can exploit that against somebody else to get like a remote entry into their uh, machine. But with something like this, where it's propagated through a network, and there's, you know, economic implications, I think it's extremely interesting from an, like, you know, from a threat point of view of what can a, an attacker do with a powerful exploit against you know these networks when that doesn't hit it you know people always talk about the u.s government needs to implement a blockchain and some type of cryptocurrency and you, know, <laughs> you know what i mean like i don't want to be an ass but you know like there's so many issues we have no clue about that you're putting financial stability on something that like if you take ethereum out of it but you look at smart contracts in general right if they're vulnerable in the same manner you know in a, a really crazy sci-fi way you know maybe you absolutely destroy economies by preventing people from carrying out instant transactions right like these are the types of things that are like huge problems that for now it's fine because cryptocurrency is still a certain demographic of users right you know cryptocurrency enthusiasts but if it were to become mainstream and part of a actual country's uh economic uh plan right like we're going to have a cryptocurrency you know you could really really make it painful by slowing down their transactions and causing who knows what again all kinds of issues but that's just again purely speculation purely speculation yeah and i mean let's be honest uh something complex like a virtual machine uh you know we've seen it with browsers there's always going to be bugs in it that can be exploited it's just it's one of those complex systems like a kernel you know there's there it's never going to be bug free so i think that is a really interesting thing to think about because i do see, you know you do see that trend of People saying, oh, we should be using this for banks. Banks should be using blockchain and this should be using, uh, you know, crypto for our, our main, you know, currency. Although, to be fair, a lot of that is like banks use it behind the scenes, not like a public blockchain. And I mean, the blockchain is also different necessarily than EVM. Like not every blockchain involves pushing bytecode. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. So, I, yeah, I I should have mentioned that. Ethereum like, special yeah. in that sense. Like that is kind of Ethereum's key selling point is that, you know, this idea of smart contracts. Yeah. So I guess the, the question is less about, you know, using crypto in general, but more the use of smart contracts. And I, how I much they can be trusted. I think you can make an argument for that. And I, I think the, the whole thing behind smart contracts was more of a, you know, push into like, you can use this for 
you know, actual banks and stuff like that, because you need a smart contract realistically. You need something like that. Um, so I, I think it's just, I think it's helpful to at least look at these problems and know that they're a problem, because um, this is very weird. But I mean, if, if this exists, you know, what other issues exist? Is the the fear, uncertainty, and doubt I can spin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, none of us really do, uh, at, like, smart contract research it is quite a complex area so it's it's hard to talk about it too technically but yeah it is interesting to think about you know that economic implication of of some of the the attacks uh one other thing i did want to bring up that's not on the screen share at the moment that i'm going to bring up is uh oh well <laughs> apparently that i'm going to bring up I'll a search for some with... html yeah that's very good uh i don't know why well, we're on that. it though uh some ctfs i've been seeing have started having some smart contract issues coming yeah there's this <laughs> okay it's something it's something with the uh can i <laughs> can i do it like this okay i'll do it like that i that is weird man that's something with the clipboard uh yeah i just wanted to bring up that they do actually have a bounty so uh, they offer up to 25,000 points for a critical and the conversion factor right now is one point is one US dollar. So they offer up to $25,000 for critical uh, vulnerabilities. So that's, that is something I wanted to bring up. You know, they're obviously aware of the security implications of attacks against the, uh, against smart contracts. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point too. And I, I feel like there's not many people researching it at the moment. There are companies that are researching stuff like this, but um, you know, I would be curious how you would even, you know, like most people get scared about, you know, like all oh, these exploits going to end up in the underground and so on and so forth. But I don't think I've ever seen anyone trying to sell something for, you know, cryptocurrency. Not like yet. This. I mean, if smart contracts were to become more adopted. Uh, then you might see, at least in terms of attacking the smart contracts, not necessarily attacking Ethereum itself, uh, but attacking the smart contracts are at least a little bit more... Like, I'm definitely seeing some research coming out in that area, and I think that's going to be the more practical thing than attacking Ethereum itself. Yeah. Well, aren't there, there, there are currencies built off Electrum, right? Or, I'm sorry, goddamn, Ethereum. <laughs> Electrum, right. <laughs> uh, Electrum too, right? No, but uh, on, on Ethereum, I thought there's other coins built off it, right? Off uh, it or uh, forked from it? I'm not sure, but yeah, forked. there are some at least with that idea, the same idea here. So you know, the spooky thing could be that it's necessarily you know someone is basing it off of Ethereum, right? They fork it, and it has the same inherent flaw in it, so that it's not just affecting only Ethereum; it's affecting a whole bunch of other coins, right? I don't know, like a uh, bat, I guess, basic attention token, which is with the one browser that uh, Brave. Uh, Brave, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess that it, you know, um, uses it. So, I, you know, I'm trying to look for other ones, but, you know, that's kind of the, the impact isn't just related to one cryptocurrency. It could affect a whole bunch of other ones, too. And there are applications, I think, supposed to be built off of Ethereum, like games and stuff for some reason. But, um, you know, th there could be more reaching impacts is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, and I mean, that the things being built off of it, though, I think are more dealing with the smart contract aspects. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely more than just Ethereum that could be impacted. Uh, just on the topic of smart contracts, I'm just going to put a little plug out here for 
one thing um it's a blockchain based etf so for like if you want to look into actually learning to attack uh blockchain or like sorry not blockchain looking to learn to attack um the smart contracts this is just it's a smallish ctf there's i don't think they actually show the challenges yeah so you need to have the plugin i think before you uh can actually see everything but essentially uh this website here, blockchain CTF. Uh, it essentially just has several CTF-like challenges that deal specifically with smart contracts. So, like, if somebody's actually interested in learning, that's... I haven't seen a lot of resources that are kind of good for beginners, but this is one of them. Very good. Yeah, and I'll, yeah, and I'll be honest. I mean, I this discussion has actually kind of made me want to look at this kind of stuff because... I've always I've always been fascinated by those attacks against VMs. It reminds me a lot of browser exploits, right? You're exploiting engines by running code and trying to exploit how that code is ran. Uh, and you know, given the like the security impact that you could have with the virtual machines and stuff, I think it would be very cool to look at. And I might actually look at it myself. Uh, play that uh, CTF. It's definitely a new area for. Yeah, uh, like definitely an area that somebody getting involved can have a big impact pretty quickly, like new attack ideas. Yeah. All right, boys, we figured it out. Next gold mine, uh, blockchain bones. All right, smart contract bones. Let's get into it. <laughs> I mean, the, if the blockchains kind of get adopted and we start seeing more smart contracts, then yeah, there will be a demand for the vulnerabilities. I mean, and more companies are using it, so... Like so, right now, it's still kind of ahead of the market, I think, in terms of like professionals, like actually looking to hire somebody to assess their blockchain, like their contracts, I should say, but it might be coming. It really depends on how Ethereum goes, but there's so definitely potential. If, Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, so what if we attack Ethereum smart contracts and get paid out with Ethereum? <laughs> then you better switch it to well, so that's <laughs> what you might be doing, though. With a lot of these, it it is abusing them so that you can get more money out of it. Yeah. But yeah, uh, we'll we'll leave a link to the uh, the security innovation blockchain CTF challenge uh, in the description for those of you who want to check it out because it is definitely a, an interesting area. Uh, but from that, I guess we'll we'll move into the uh, the LTE uh, stuff. So there was an article. Researchers found a bunch, like thirty six, I think, new security flaws in LTE, which is used for mobile. Uh, and I I saw some of the vulnerabilities allowed attackers to, you know, hit mobile base stations. Uh, they could block incoming calls, disconnect them entirely from the mobile network spoof messages and uh and even i saw something where you could cause a handover on somebody else's personal device if you were in a certain range and just basically switch it over to like a rogue network uh, instead of the real lte network uh so i i know you had a few things that you wanted to say on this anti from like a you know from a threat intel perspective 
Yeah, I mean, it's a big old white paper, so I'd have to read it more. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you know, my my guess from a 16-page report, just that skimming it. So I I think what's fascinating, actually, in terms of, like, what's to be worried about is, you know, obviously, LTE is is used everywhere now. Um, I've even seen, obviously, like, China, I think, is trying to push for, like, 5G. Um, and other kind of uh, networks that people are no longer just using their home networks, right? People rely heavily on their phone network. And uh, I, I think actually the crazy part to me here, and how many vulnerabilities was it? 36? Yeah, 36. Yeah, so I mean, the crazy part of that to me is 36 vulnerabilities tells me that, I don't want to say no one's looking at this because I have seen re- researchers who have published um, a lot of research, you know, on LTE and various kind of like cell towers, <clears throat> but that that's a, that's an incredible amount. Even it says there, 30, oh, okay, so basically, fifty-one vulnerabilities, fifteen known, thirty-six new. Um, yeah, you know, these are things that I, as far as I know, they don't get fixed very quickly. It's not very easy to fix these vulnerabilities most times, um, it, and it doesn't help that each carrier. So there's so many carriers in the U.S. alone, right? T-Mobile, AT&T. Sprint, whoever else, right? To get everyone to go and patch for these vulnerabilities, you know, these probably linger for a long time, and God knows how long these have existed. That this this literally falls into nation state activity. Um, you know, it's I would say not really a secret that you know China's looked at vulnerabilities for these. They've attacked base stations, and I, I think my non-technical approach before we get into that is that you know. From what I can tell, I mean, this is out of Korea, right? Yeah, these look like Korean. Yeah, it's a Korean team, yeah. I mean, I'm surprised that we haven't seen more research into this at all, to be honest with you. Um, You know what I mean? This IC4G there, and and the implication maybe being that um, 5G, when it comes out as well, is I know there were already worries about no one's tested the actual security behind it and has a lot more features. So I I think when you're looking at stuff like this, I don't know if I've seen a lot of like, you know, low level skitty types using shit like this, but I do know that this is definitely an area of research for a lot of nation states um, to kind of just look at, right? Uh, and I, it's hard to talk about because it, it is a very large white paper with very in-depth details. It's very um, technical, yeah. Um, I mean, are there any, when's the last time someone's leveraged it? I, I feel like an LTE exploit though. Honestly, I I, I don't know if I've ever heard of that you know maybe i'm just ignorant uh, and i just haven't seen that because i haven't looked for it but i you know i haven't really heard of attacks against lte before and have you have you guys i mean i haven't heard of like any campaigns i've heard of attacks against it before but not like a live campaign i mean it wouldn't surprise me that there has been it's just maybe you know the media isn't really picking that up or all that interested in it yeah, it I could mean, be I, that. I know there's broke cell towers are like the big thing that people can set up down cell towers. You connect and it's just oh yeah, that that's common. You know, that's that's a that's but that's a basic level, right? That's a very dummy level type of attack. Almost anyone could do it with like twenty dollars worth of hardware, right? Um, I would yeah. be very curious on who outside of I mean, again, just an advanced actor who's targeting this for very normally spying reasons, right? It doesn't like there's already things like sim swapping that you can go and steal people's phones with, right? Um, to actually target a cell tower and like LTE specifically, um, there is a good amount of research out there, but I don't know of any publicly known campaigns. And if that's the case, I'm making a very 
very low confidence on this one, but I bet you there's actually plenty of attacks that are happening, but they're not publicized on purpose. You know what I mean? Because you don't want to cause people to start looking more and because there's realistically probably not a lot of fixing that goes on with these types of vulnerabilities. Um, Do we need tinfoil hats or... No, I'm just kidding. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've already donned mine in this conversation because, again, it is Yeah, very don't scary. you have yours? I mean, we have them branded I, for day mine zero. Mine broke. I need to make another one. <laughs> I have two layers just in case they get through the first. Um, I, you know, the, the LTE specifically, and again, I think 5G is coming out at some point here soon. Um, you know, all these things are rushed a lot of times. And... I don't think I've seen many security experts weigh in on it because it takes a lot of knowledge of how it all works. But, you know, these are things that you could quite literally go and, I mean, at a small level, carry out a DDoS attack, right? A lot of times it's one of the popular ones I've seen. Uh, you know, shut down a cell network in a given area and then you cause panic in a city, right? Um, well, I mean, that when... happens at like every arena too. Or yeah. whatever uh, provider doesn't get up. Uh... The contract to actually serve the arena like everybody else is basically ddos when you have thousands of people there the denial of service isn't all that crazy at any level i mean if there was some way that like they could spread this like malware via the lt that i think could be i mean what it, it, what let's happened? say interesting what was the thing that like got sent out the the nuclear bomb threat or some shit that like Everyone in Hawaii got hit uh, with their Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that was the <laughs> alert system that was hacked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's... A... Or no, not hacked. Sorry. I'm, I'm thinking yeah, because there have been people... It was pieces... just... It was push the wrong hacked. button. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking there have been cases, though, of, like, the tornado warning systems. I don't remember where it was, but I know at least one case. Somebody had compromised this tornado warning system or alarm and had it do the alarm for, like, uh an impending airstrike or something like it was left over from you know like cold war something like that like nobody ever heard this alarm before they've heard the tornado one but not this like impending land attack or something i don't remember what exactly it was but the emergency systems have been compromised uh many times in the past yeah, I mean, one thing I could think of with the LTE stuff is, you know, you know, stuff like Amber Alerts, how they get, you know, uh, text force texted to everyone in the area kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I could see that being like kind of an interesting thing to hit. Uh, I don't know if that really about... happens, though, at the LTE level or that's separate. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know sure. how that works, to be honest. Although, let me just say, I do not appreciate the presidential alert levels out in Canada for Amber Alert. Uh, that's that's unrelated to this, but I'm just going to say it. <laughs> just want to throw it out there. Use proper levels. They exist for a reason. Don't send everything as a presidential alert. We don't even have a president. <laughs> I feel like, you know, that you gotta have the ability to, to warn everyone of when your stomach hurts or something, right? I, well, I they like... sent a warning out when it ended, too. Like, it was the middle of the night thing. I think it was in BC that this one happened recently, where they sent out an Amber Alert at, like, somewhere in the middle of the night. I want to say, like, 1 a.m. I don't know my time exactly, but then, like, two hours later, they sent out one saying that the Amber Alert was no longer in effect. Yeah. And all of these are being sent at presidential alert levels. You cannot mute it. No, you can't. 
even if your phone is on silent, it'll still it'll still uh, go off. I mean, that's you know, I just think on a on a big level, like I said, I don't. I hope to God little skiddies don't start getting into this because that's just hell for everyone. But you know, I, I mean, people get scared about the uh, stingrays that like police officers use to to intercept text messages and stuff in a given area and location data. Yeah, I remember hearing about it, that. Yeah. I believe that's what they're called. Um, I know. Yeah, like, that's correct. Like GSM and stuff like that. Like if you're tapping cell towers, you know, you can see pretty much down. I, I don't know how close, but like within a few feet, I think uh, nowadays where someone is. Right. So you could map an entire area of where everyone is at any given time. Right. And also, I, I think I'm pretty sure with what this paper probably has in it is, uh, again, sniffing the traffic that SMS is not encrypted right um at least i don't believe it's encrypted no it's not um, it's not so, by the i mean you can do things to kind of like encrypt it but then your recipient also needs by default it's yeah and so that's where i was kind of getting at that i mean granted there's a lot of different applications now but i, I wonder if you could do you know if you are able to attack a cell tower right or multiple ones you're able to do traffic shaping most likely you can see all the and entry and exit right so, uh, I mean, you're not just looking at all the people within an area. You can probably map out what they're saying and what they're doing. I mean, I, I don't know the full implication here because now I'm actually very curious. You're curious about the blockchain. I'm actually more fascinated now by threats to, like, LTE and, you know, uh, but, like, it just general GSM stuff because I think this is I think this is an area that no one wants to touch because probably, like, the uh, FCC, I think it is. Federal. Yeah, I, I think they would probably come and arrest the hell out of you for doing anything too bad. <laughs> So there's that and like you know testing it just like there's a lot of protection around what you can broadcast and how far mm-hmm. uh, getting your hands on the hardware like i mean you can get your own base station and stuff but to get what's actually being used might be a little bit more difficult i'm not sure how difficult that's that though yeah i was about to add in that uh, part of the reason i think not a lot of people are doing research on it is I noticed that the white paper did mention that a lot of these restrictions you're talking about and stuff are enforced at the hardware level on the chip itself. So it's not incredibly easy to get into that, right? Uh, There's quite a bit of, you know, the barrier to entry is a bit higher uh, than you would expect, I think, for trying to research it. That sounds not good if it's embedded into the hardware, though. I'm sure that then presents any issues stay like that for a long time, Uh, you know. because again, I, I don't think I've heard this isn't like, you know, Windows patches everything every certain amount of like a week or something like that. It's th- these things probably linger. And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to skim over what I'm seeing. But uh, I mean, th- there's not a lot of protection in place basically for a normal person. So there's no updating anything you can do, you know, especially with 50 vulnerabilities they're discussing here. Um, you know, most of what I was seeing though was like mapping people to where they are but I, I am curious to see if it'll allow it it's here yeah so just another thing i wanted to kind of throw in there is that uh these issues like these 36 issues they were also found with fuzzing so i guess the uh one one theme of this episode is fuzzing because we've talked about it with like three or four different topics but uh yeah i thought that was kind of interesting uh, interesting as well because they actually built i think they built a custom fuzzing tool from the ground up uh called wow, LTE that is, fuzz. That's some real shit right there to to build your own 
bouncy e fuzzing, huh? That's now this is really interesting. I think I want to look more at um this and maybe we can follow up with it in a week or two. You know, I, I'd love to see more of this and see what's going on because I mean some of it it just looks like they're using Wireshark to sniff this traffic and just checking the responses. Uh, I mean I see resource depletion. Um if people still have data limits, I guess you can abuse that. Uh yeah. But no, I, I think this is very fascinating. I don't have enough knowledge in it, but I, I do I do see stuff like man in the middle attacks, um, DOS attack. So this would be very cool. I, I would like to talk about it more, but I'd also like not to be arrested for talking about it. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know. So I've just highlighted a paragraph here. This talks a bit more about the res like restrictions I was talking about. It's talking about how the networks are closed systems. Uh, it's difficult to correctly determine the root causes of the problems on the device side because you know the signals and stuff are uh, are restricted depending on like the regulations for the carrier the country and all that kind of stuff that's enforced on the chipset so yeah so that's why i just think it's a hard thing to talk about because you can't really explain the why you just know that i i threw some random stuff at it and it did something bad <laughs> you know which is interesting right like do we really want a system that's used by pretty much everyone that you know <sighs> But do we it's, want it not to be publicly auditable? Yeah, like, is it an issue that it's so closed source that people can't look at it that could help make it better? On right? the other hand, you know, if it's difficult for you, is it difficult for a nation state? And I'm going to say probably not. I mean, generally no. speaking, that just doesn't work. That is, though, a common uh, comment made back is, you know, if, if you're restricted at that level, then the nation state also like a proper attacker can't get access to it, actually find the issue i mean moving forward i think this type of stuff will be less of an issue i think we are kind of moving as a society towards more openness on that or more access as people are seeing that security by obscurity just isn't working or at least it doesn't work on its own i don't think security by obscurity is necessarily a bad thing just it should not be the only thing if it is you and it shouldn't be relied upon it's just an extra layer. yeah yeah no, i agree yeah. we talked about that before same thing just you know pretending like oh well you don't know what's going on so you can't do bad things it's terrible <laughs> terrible idea every single time it shows to be a terrible idea yeah uh yeah so that pretty much concludes the uh the lte stuff the the last major topic is the uh, Facebook storing hundreds of millions of passwords in plain text. So, uh, I don't see those... what's the problem here. Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with plain text passwords. What the hell? Of course. Uh, I, I'll talk on this one. Um, okay. I mean, there's definitely it, it's plain text passwords. I think we all kind of know, you know, you don't store passwords in plain text. If you're running the hashing algorithm yourself, like if you're actually running like SHA, whatever, like the two family or whatever, you're doing it wrong. If you're manually creating your salts, you're doing it wrong. So the fact that Facebook, a huge company, suddenly has, it comes out that, oh yeah, their passwords stored in plain text. To be clear, passwords are not stored in plain text. Uh, passwords in this situation do end up being written out to logs and probably a logging database uh, in plain text but it's not like some engineer went and they're implementing the login system and registration they're like 
Oh, we don't need uh, no hash. No, we don't, cool we don't need that. <laughs> like, or we we need better performance. We need to be web scale. Uh, <laughs> let's just not hash passwords, or let's just not do security on that. What happened here is that somewhere in the logging system, uh, requests were logged, or something was logged that contained the password. And I've definitely seen this on a fair number of clients where their logging system, like just some overzealous engineer just goes, okay, we're just going to, I don't know if this is the case for Facebook, by the way, but they just go and we're like, oh, let's just log. If we had like a crash or something like the request can't be handled. Let's just log the request. And of course we want the entire body of the request. And in that body, you know, an error happens during the login Suddenly, you're logging the passwords. I mean, yeah. can you scroll down a bit? I'm just curious. The only thing that I guess shakes my thoughts on it is, um, I mean, I can't see the full thing, but it says Facebook is probing a series of security failures. So it wasn't just one instance, but I mean, what's interesting is employees built applications, like you said, that logged unencrypted password data. What I'm curious about is what those applications were, right? Um, so Facebook I mean, Lite is one of them that gets mentioned. And I mean, it could just be the fact that there should have been like uh, some security mechanism in place that would redact certain things or not allow auditing of the or not allow logging of this. There isn't a lot of information on the actual details, just that a lot of passwords were compromised. And yeah, Facebook Lite sounds to be the system that uh, had the issue. here. I just, you know, it's if you look at it, I mean, I, I know that they're probably doing like the extreme, like 2,000 people had access, which doesn't necessarily mean 2,000 people, right? Oh, there you go. 2,000, you know, 2,000 engineers were suddenly going through this on a daily basis. You can have access to things without ever touching it. I guess, you know, the, the shitty part is always, you know, hopefully no one did anything bad with it. I, I assume Facebook has pretty good insider controls, but that's what happens a lot of times is... You know, someone has access to something and they go, well, no one should be doing anything with it because we log it. But then only to find out three years later, like, oh, well, we only logged for three days. You know what I mean? Like those those are the only kind of weird things that, of course, Facebook would never be like, yeah, like 60 people have been going through, you know, this daily to look for certain passwords. Like, I don't I don't know if it was just because that they were just lazy and set it up. And, you know, I don't know. I think it's a pretty bad thing, though. I. I, I don't think it's, it's an issue. It's it's not as bad as like if they were actually storing the passwords that way. But I mean, the logging thing, it's a little bit more explicable in this age where somebody, you know, I don't know if that's the case, but somebody just overzealous logged too much information or didn't consider the sensitive nature. It's definitely an issue. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not as bad as plain text passwords. But... It is plain text passwords. Like that is the case. So I did, I did want to add on to that a bit. So Antti, you mentioned it a little bit with the access logs showed some 2000 engineers. Uh, that is an interesting point. Uh, what I think you, you left out of that was that it said that some 2000 engineers or developers made approximately 9 million internal queries for data elements that contain plain text passwords. So in fairness, that might not be they were looking specifically for plain text passwords. It could just be that they were looking for something that contained them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to imply that, you know, there's mm-hmm. 2000 evil people at Facebook that are just trying to search for everyone's passwords or anything, but uh, 
that is like an interesting point. Uh, another point is Facebook says that they are doing an un ongoing investigation and they haven't found any indications that employees have abused access to this data. That being said, I don't really know how they could know that reasonably. <laughs> I mean, if they like, audit what gets searched, like what people are looking up on their logging system, which I imagine they do, most big clients that I've worked with, you know, do have the auditing of who's searching what logs. So it is something that they could see. They could see, oh, this person's actually looking for like the string password or like the key string that exists in these. Um, that's distinct for the passwords. Uh, although somebody who's doing that, I would guess they would find another way to search for these things. Like it happened in a particular error message or like a particular error happened around it first. Um, at least, I mean, if I were trying to exfiltrate, that's what I would be doing. I wouldn't directly query for it. Yeah, uh, so that makes it fair. harder, but it's definitely like you can see when one person or some people are querying for uh, the same type of information. They don't necessarily have a good reason to be that. Uh, yeah. th there is logging does exist for the log access. I, yeah. I'd just be curious why. The only thing that really, honestly, I was curious about is it sounds like this was an unnamed Facebook insider, right? I know that someone from Facebook did talk about it, whoever Scott Renfro is, but it sounds like there was another person who actually alerted Krebs to this. I'm curious what prompted them to put this out there. You know what I mean? If it was being handled correctly, you know, was it just a person who's an a-hole and wanted to make a big deal out of it? Or, you know, is it something that he felt or she felt like there was not enough being done and wanted to make sure people were aware you know yeah like my initial thought as you said that was well mandatory reporting but since it is an insider thing it wasn't leaked outside i don't think they'd be under any mandatory reporting that they just weren't doing although mm -hmm. perhaps this person feels that mandatory reporting should include something like that uh no. but yeah i don't know what their opinions are on any of that it definitely is an interesting question because, you know, it mentioned that it's been happening for years. So, you know, if it's been happening for that long, why now? Right. And that's all, you know, I'm not saying anything against Facebook. Things take time, you know, and um, I was just curious what finally prompted this individual to, to put that information out there, you know, especially because Facebook did say that they were planning on telling people, well, when was that the case? You know, many companies go, well, we were going to say something and, you know, never did until it. It got out there right so that's yeah. the only thing that you know is worth it it's, it's always a good look at the quote-unquote insider to go and say why right because that's what insider threat modeling has is the why why are they the insider right um, yeah so but yeah otherwise you know another day another millions of passwords that someone probably has that are yours i don't know <laughs> and does i mean mention... for facebook it's oh sorry go ahead does this mention how long, like it mentions how long the issue's been there, but how long Facebook has known about it? I mean, you, you said I years just briefly, but I mean, that's, it's been logging. It said first came to light January 2019, which. Okay. I don't. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. literally right there on the page. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, it hasn't been that they've been sitting on this for years. January is still pretty recent, given how long yeah. an investigation like this might take, especially when it is, like, happening over years. Yeah, for sure. That is a fair point. 
uh, that, you know, it could have been happening for years, but that doesn't mean that it was known for years. You know, I, I appreciate though that, you know, they, as much shit as Facebook gets, you know, sometimes you just gotta, hopefully they, they cop to it and go, yeah, it happened and they fixed it. And you know, that's, that's the end of it. Unfortunately, you know, these things seem to be becoming uh, increasingly common. That happened with GitHub. As it says already, GitHub and Twitter had this similar things happen where it's like, oops, plain text passwords are being scraped again. Like this, yeah. this just seems to be a reoccurring theme that I'm always just curious how this keeps happening. Well, it's um, pretty easy. Like I said, overzealous logging. You're just like, okay, well, I've got this issue here. I can't figure it out. You're trying to debug it. You spend your hours, your days, your week on it. It's like, let's just log the next time it happens and get all the data. And then it happens on like the login right, or yeah. something. Like I, I can see how a developer does that. I mean, especially one that isn't really too conscious of uh, this sort of issue. Because once you're aware of it, it kind of just becomes second nature to think about what you're logging. But it's not like it's something that's really taught. That's true. I mean, I have no idea if Facebook has like their own internal security teachings. I'd, I'd assume they probably do have something like that. But I mean, I could see just why a developer would decide to log that information, not really thinking about the consequences of that or that it might contain a password. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. It is yeah, something just... that they should be looking for in auditing. Like that should be part of code review. Yeah. Uh yeah, like I, I don't think it was done with like malicious intent or anything, but I guess it does kind of uh you know is another example of why you shouldn't use the same password everywhere. Password manager is probably a good idea to have. Uh you know, not not saying that, you know. Some some employee is going to take all these passwords and go make a big dump out of them and you know sell them or something, but uh, it's it's just yeah it is a possibility and if it's happening in Facebook it's probably happening other places too obviously right like you Perhaps. know Facebook's a big company and if they're doing it it's very possible that smaller sites are doing it that people use. I mean, uh, so again, using a little bit of my experience though, it's with the small it really. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like, it's it's a mistake anybody can make. Yeah. Smaller companies, though, are more likely, I think, to just kind of log, like, you know, printf debugging, and then remove those <laughs> things pretty quickly. Yeah. Whereas, if there's more of a process going into it at a larger company, you start seeing this thing more and more, especially if they start keeping their logs longer and longer. Uh, like... I, it's just something that I've seen. Like, once the companies start having that infrastructure to do this long-term logging, then it seems more likely that they're going to do that for longer, whereas the smaller companies, maybe not so much. But it is a mistake I think a developer anywhere can make. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. That's fair assessment. Yeah. So I think that, that pretty much sums up the password discussion, right? You guys don't have anything to add, do you? <laughs> no, that no, about sums it up. Okay. Uh, just before we end the podcast, I did want to do a bit of a, uh, you know, shout out to this article from McAfee. It's the analysis of the Chrome zero day. So this is actually the same zero day we were talking about on the first podcast. Uh, and I was saying at the time, you know, we didn't really know many technical details, just that it was a UAF and the file reader API. Well, now there is a, a write up of like the full technical details of uh, all the 
nitty gritty JavaScript stuff that was happening in behind it. So uh, if you're interested in that kind of stuff and you're interested in browser exploitation, definitely uh, say you should probably check it out. Uh, I haven't read the full thing yet. I've, I've read a little bit of it, but not too in depth. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely very interesting to read. Yeah, so. it's pretty solid write-up. I've given it a read over. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that I really like about it is there's not a ton of write-ups about WebKit. or Well, this isn't about WebKit. It's about there's Chrome. There's plenty about browser WebKit. Stuff. But about browser stuff in general. And yeah, I guess even Chrome less so than WebKit, right? There's not a lot of write-ups about browser stuff because it's such a complex topic. So Absolutely. if you're interested in that, definitely take a look at uh, that art, that right, that right up. Sorry, what was that you said, Andy? Nothing. I just, I was agreeing. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's all the topics uh, that we, that we wanted to cover today. So that pretty much sums up the podcast. Do you guys have anything you guys want to add? No, the only thing I will add here is not really a new topic, but again, if you guys want to see something covered, you want us to talk about something or add some thoughts or maybe a larger discussion on something definitely let us know in comments uh just so we can kind of get some more ideas going for what type of content people actually want to see and once again we'll be live again next week at uh 3 p.m eastern is that the time 3... for you guys yep that's right 3 p.m eastern 3 p.m eastern 1 p.m pacific T time zones are hard <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so we'll be we'll be joining you guys again next week monday 3 p.m eastern uh noon pacific one and or one, is that one? one no pacific? no it is noon sorry <laughs> i i was yeah, wrong see, yeah i i went with my own <laughs> see, i get messed up because my time zone changes part way through the year because we don't do daylight savings yeah so you know all of a sudden everybody else has shifted an hour and i'm still on my own <laughs> yeah you gotta gotta get that right <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah concluding our little rant about time zones that's that sums up the podcast uh, we'll see you guys next week uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. We, we figured it out. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys then. Bye, everyone.